six months ago, which I can barely, um, you uh, might remember that we were going through a series through the book of Acts called A Peaceful Invasion. And it's kind of like where we go to between our topical series. We go back to a book and make our way through. Um, And it was like forever ago. I think it was October, the last time we were in the book of Acts. But where we left off was in Acts chapter 18 in October, and we're going to pick up this morning in Acts chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 18, but um, just to, we're just going to jump right in, right? Pick up right back where we're at, but to give you a little bit of context, okay, um, for where we're at, because we're picking up in the middle of a narrative. Um, At this point in the book, we are following kind of the, 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 the focus, the main character, the main human character, because actually the main character is God, um, but the main human character is, is Paul, right? A guy named Paul. And uh, Paul, originally named Saul, um, we're following around. He, he's traveling around. He's essentially a missionary to the known world at the time, to, to the Gentile world, the Roman world at the time. Um, and it's It's surprising that he's been sent as a missionary to proclaim the gospel um, into the Roman world, the good news, because uh, what what, what Paul is preaching began, and we we see this in in the beginning of of, uh, the book of Acts, it began as a, a movement among a really exclusivist group of religious people called the Jews. And it was confined to a geographical area, the area of Jerusalem, and then the surrounding area of of Judea, which was all Jewish territory in the Roman world. And so it's surprising that Paul is going out to all over outside of this area because this movement began as such an exclusive movement. And, and, And these Jews, they were people who really believed in very unique things, things that were unique to the Roman world at the time. They believed, um, first of all, that there was only one God and that all the other gods that everyone else in Rome uh, worshipped in, in the Roman pantheon, that it was all just a pretend god. It wasn't actually anything godly about it. So these, these Jews were exclusive. They believed in one god, which is, which is a crazy thing in the Roman world. And not only that, they believed that they, the Jews themselves, were actually God's chosen people, that God had selected them um, to uniquely be his representatives in the world and to be recipients of his blessing and his word and to be kind of like the stewards of his presence in the world and that God would, through them, be working in the world. And they believed that they had received some special and unique promises from God, that God had called them out uniquely and particularly and that God was going to protect them and defend them and make them great, and he was going to fulfill all these promises to them. So they believed that, that, that what God was going to do, he was going to do those things and fulfill all those promises by sending the Messiah, is what they, what they called this person that they were expecting, a person who was going to save, someone whom God had selected to, to lift them up and make good on the promises and be their defender and, and make them and establish them as a people once again, save them from their enemies. But then something unexpected happens in the story, right? And, and you probably are familiar with it. There's this person who comes, a man whose name is Jesus, and the whole Jewish world is turned upside down because many people begin to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one sent by God to, set, to, to make good on all these promises to his people. 
and it's pretty controversial for a little while because um, many didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were skeptical of Jesus because even though he had really demonstrated remarkable power, like everybody looked at what the things he was doing and they said it could only be like some sort of divine power that can enable that. Even though he was demonstrating his power and even though he was teaching with authority, like he just had a way of understanding God's word and it was compelling and people were coming and flocking to hear his message. Even though he had all those things, he didn't quite fit the mold, the expectation that the religious people had of what the Messiah was going to look like. Because Jesus did some things that to religious Jews didn't seem quite right. He cared and spent time with unclean people people who didn't um, meet the standard for someone who could be with God. Jesus, like the anointed of God, the Messiah, he spent time with people like that. And he treated the Jews' enemies, the Romans, and then those who collaborated with the Jews' enemies. He treated them with kindness and respect and didn't mock and ridicule and beat them. Instead, he invited them into, uh, he, he went into their homes with them and, and ate with them. And, and so a lot of people, when they met Jesus and heard about him, they were a little concerned because it seemed like he wasn't going to be doing all the things that they expected him to be doing. And so a group of people, a group of these people, the leaders, really, of, of this, this Jewish movement, this exclusivist movement that was against Rome and hoping for God's deliverance, what they decided to do is they, they collaborated to kill Jesus. And, and they did that. They, 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 they captured him in the middle of the night, and they brought him, uh, judged him, and then they brought them, him to, to the Roman governor, because the Rome was the only people who could actually kill anyone. They didn't have the right to, to uh, inflict a capital punishment, brought him to the Roman government, governor, and they basically harassed the Roman governor until he finally agreed to kill Jesus. And those who killed Jesus thought they'd taken care of the problem because they thought, man, this, this Jesus guy who claims to be Messiah, he's not really the Messiah. He's false, and, and when we kill him, it'll be proved that in fact he wasn't the Messiah and that we need to keep waiting and we need to wait for this like militaristic like leader who's going to come and, and raise us up and save us. Um, and we, we will have taken care of the problem. But then something surprising happens, right? They kill him, but he didn't stay dead. Jesus didn't stay dead. Satan did his worst. He deceived God's people, even to the point where they killed the Messiah that they had been waiting for. But God brought the king back to life. He brought the Messiah back to life. In so doing, he began a revolution. He turned the world upside down. And it was a revolution of adoption. We're going to talk about that this morning. It was a peaceful invasion where God was going and taking back his creation despite any opposition. He was sending his spirit into the world, gathering up all the chaos of the world, all the, all the opposition of the world, and bringing people back to him. God was going to do this through the Messiah, through the birth of Jesus. We hear about this in John 1, 9, uh, this prologue of the book of John. It kind of gives um, a, a shape of the story, and this is the shape of the story. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That is Jesus. He was in the world. 
and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. See, Jesus comes, Messiah, light into the world, and he gives those who believe in him the right to become children of God. He is the anointed one. He's sent into, to, 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 into the world to bring about adoption into his family, the family of God for people who are far off. For, for the natural children, right, the, the Jews, the ones who believed they had received this special promise from God, but also people who are not of natural descent, people whom God is choosing and adopting into the world. It was an unexpected thing. Those who received Jesus, who believed in him and trusted him, they received the Holy Spirit. The very presence of God begins to fill them and witness to what's happened to them. We read about that in Romans 8.15. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit, through the, the gospel witness, through the work of Jesus Christ, is pouring himself out, being present with people who were far off and adopting them in, making them children of God. And it is unexpected. And this little movement of Jesus' followers, that is the, the Jews, uh, the ones that the Jews, the, the religious leaders had thought they had crushed, it begins to grow and grow because suddenly these people, like who, who worship a dead Messiah, they realize, no, actually God is upturning. He's turning everything on its head. They're, they're starting to, to believe that actually God cares about them, that he loves them, that he's adopted them into to, to his family. And they're so excited. You know, these were people who previously had worshipped God. They had practiced the rites and rituals of Judaism. And they'd known all the right things to believe about God. And yet suddenly something happens. They trust in this Messiah. And then they have life. And their religious practice suddenly becomes real. And it becomes vibrant. They receive a spirit. They believe in Jesus. And they're being transformed right in front of the eyes of all these people who were trying to squash this movement. They had the reverence. That was before just a show. They had the joy that was before just a show. They had, they had peace that was not at all steady before. They're suddenly worshiping God and finding that he is doing something in them. He's adopted them into their family because of what Jesus has done. Because it's one thing to be religious, and it is another thing entirely to be adopted into the family of God. And what we see in this little movement that starts in Jerusalem is the difference between those two things. Among a religious people, people who were, who were tending to God, taking care of God, God's word, God all of a sudden shows up, and they're not the same. These people who were, were understood God's word and valued God's word before, suddenly they have life in them. They have the spirit in them. And it just overflows. 
this little movement of faith in Jesus, which begins in Jerusalem among Jews. It surprisingly doesn't stay in Jerusalem. It goes out into the world, first through the synagogues, into the, the communities of Jews that were outside of Jerusalem, because there were Jews living all over the known world at the time. And then, shockingly and scandalously, and really the, the point of conflict over the last six chapters of the book of, book of Acts, is that it starts to spread among non-Jews, this spirit of adoption, this awareness that God is present and that, that through Jesus the Messiah, like he's adopting people into his family, it starts to spread among people who are, have no business knowing who God is, have no business having fellowship with God, and it is a scandalous thing. And God raises up a man, a man named Paul, we know as Paul, to be a missionary to the Gentile world, to be the one who's going proclaiming this message of adoption to people who had no business with God. And that's what we see him doing in Acts 18, okay? So just look, like picking up Acts 18, 1, this is the beginning of this chapter. After this, and the this referred to here is him being chased out of Macedonia, like people trying to stone him and kill him. <laughs> so he has to run and flee and get to the coast to, to, to another city, right? Uh, so, he, so he left Macedonia, and he went to Athens, and then Athens down to Corinth. He says he left Athens, and he went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. So Paul's just traveling around. He was up in Macedonia. They tried to kill him. He comes down, comes down to Athens, um, talking to, to like philosophically inclined Greek-speaking people, and he proclaims the message there. And then he comes down into Corinth, and he connects with some people who do the same work that he does, and in order to provide for himself, he's just working, and then he's going, he's doing what he does pretty consistently. He, he shows up in a place, and he goes to the synagogue, and he starts to talk to, um, you know, the, the religious people in the synagogue, and he's persuading them, right? He, he's, he's speaking a message to the Jewish people that are there, and also to Greeks, right? And Greeks are just culturally Roman people, because the Romans just wanted to be the Greeks, just with much better military. Um, so he, he's talking to people of both cultures. He's speaking to them, because a lot of Greek people are gathering into the synagogues and, and listening to, to what these religious people have to say. And so he's traveling around the world. He has these two audiences. He's, he's speaking to the Jews first. He's going there in Corinth. Um, but what Paul finds pretty often, and we see as a, as a theme in the book of Acts, is that his message is not always well received, particularly in the synagogues. Let's, let's keep reading. We'll see what happens. So when Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, that's some of his traveling companions came down and joined him there from Macedonia, uh, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent, for now I will go to the Gentiles. See, this is pretty much this, this habit and this pattern that we see Paul doing is he'd come to a town, he'd go to the Jews, he'd teach scripture to them until they either kicked him out or tried to kill him. 
This seemed to be when he'd stopped. All right, I'll stop then. You, you, you kick me out or you try to kill me, then I'm done. Um, but it would inevitably happen and it would happen pretty quickly. Um, but here's the question, and it's kind of the question that I want to think about for the rest of this morning. What is it that Paul was saying that was so offensive? Like, what is so offensive about what he had to say to these people? Because I've said a lot of stupid things in my life. Some of you have probably experienced them. <laughs> um, and I'm not proud of that, but I don't think I've ever gotten to the place where I have people saying, you know what, just get away from me. Like, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to pick up some stones and start throwing them at you. Now, maybe for some of you, that's your life. Maybe that's how you live, right? Maybe you're, you, you're like, know how to get into conflict, right? But that's just not me. Um, and now before you pat yourself on the back and say, well, see, I'm just like the Apostle Paul. Uh, let's take stock of what they're fighting over because he's, he's fighting over something that to me doesn't seem that offensive, right? Paul is insistent about a lot of things, but the one thing he keeps going back and preaching to the Jews is this message, Jesus is the Messiah, like we see right here, Jesus is the Messiah. That's his message, right? It's not like he's going around saying, your mama's so ugly, right? He's, uh, he's, not, he's not doing it because a mama's so ugly joke, that would make people mad, right? Because my mom is here, and if anybody, no, 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 no. We would have some words, right? You're, you're beautiful, mom. I love you. Uh, <laughs> I can understand that a your mama joke would not land, but you think, man, people who are waiting for the Messiah would love to hear Jesus is the Messiah. That seems like an uncontroversial thing to tell a bunch of people who are waiting for the Messiah. Why was that so offensive? What is going on here? And sadly, we don't have a transcript of the conversation, but what we do have is we have a lot of other scripture where Paul is laying out his case for Jesus as the Messiah. And he's leaning into some of the, giving us, giving us some clues about what was so offensive in his argument, okay? And uh, probably the best place to look at this and to understand why Paul's proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah was so offensive is, is through the book of Romans. And what I actually want to do this morning is take the rest of our time and do a very quick summary of the book of Romans. <laughs> That's funny if you know how long the book of Romans is. Um, but just, just like four points in the book of Romans. Um, and this is, I would argue, the message that Paul is communicating, and particularly why it was offensive, and why it always ended this way, all right? So this is the summary of, of this offensive gospel, this offensive good news of the proclamation of Jesus the Messiah. This is the summary of it. I think we see that in Romans 1, 16 through 17. It's kind of the, the message. He says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the thing that everybody wants to make me feel ashamed for and kick me out and kill me for saying, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is, it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The beginning of this long and well-reasoned argument that he makes in the book of Romans, really in the first half of the book of Romans, Paul just lays out this summary statement. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, why is that offensive? doesn't sound that offensive to me. I think the offense is in the implications which he draws out. So 
first point he, he goes on and he makes in the argument, so again, just like, again, broad overview, is I think in Romans 1, 18, he acknowledges this, and this is not the offensive part. He, he makes a, a case in the second half of Romans 1 that the Gentiles have a problem. And the Jews would have definitely understood that the Gentiles have a problem. That was kind of their identity. They've got a problem, and we don't. The, the Gentiles don't understand. They're ignorant of God, right? Paul articulates this problem this way in Romans 1.18. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So, so he starts this argument trying to explain the offense of the gospel. And he says something to Jewish people living in Rome that they would all agree with, that God doesn't like it when unrighteous people suppress the truth that they should know about who God is and what he's like. And every Jew ever would have said, yes, we hate it when the Gentiles do that. They're the worst when they're totally ignorant of God. They should know better. They should recognize who he is. They should act better. They would all have said, 100%, Paul, we're with you. And then Paul says, now let me offend you. And he goes on and makes the second point. In Romans 2, he says this, the Jews have the same problem. Now, that would have been a little unsettling. Because they would have understood themselves to be way better off than the Gentiles who are totally ignorant and who the very little things they know about God, they totally suppress and contort and distort, who are just perverse in their culture. And they would have said, well, really? I mean, I feel like we're a lot better off than them because we understand things about God and we actually follow his law and we obey God. But Paul's argument in Romans 2 is no, you actually have the same problem. Explains it, Romans 2.25. He says, circumcision, that is like the obedience to law, which the Jews believed was, was what made them better and distinguished them because they listened to God and weren't ignorant like the Gentiles. He says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you're a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And what he's doing is saying, you guys think you follow the law, but you don't. If you're gonna if you're gonna stand on and, and try to impress God by all your goodness, then what are you gonna do when you realize that you're not that good? If you're gonna stand before God and try to be to be righteous, like don't you understand that you're just as ignorant and unrighteous as the Gentiles who you despise? He says, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. See, you, you, you pride yourself on being better than the Gentiles, of, of listening to God. But if really, if you were to know your heart, if you were to look in, in, into it, you would say, you don't actually love the things of God. And when you give yourself permission to have like that, those gray areas where you don't think God is looking, you just go and you offend him. And you don't love the things that he loves. And you don't care about the things 
that you care about. You're just as much of a sinner is the argument that Paul makes as, as the Gentiles. You're just deceiving yourself because you think that your few little things that you do well makes up for what's in your heart. He goes on. He makes a third point. He says, we all have the same problem. And actually, we all have, we all have the same salvation. We all have the same problem, Jews and Gentiles, and we all have the same hope. He says, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. God's righteousness, how people can be made right before him, how people can deal with their guilt and their shame and the problems of their hearts and all the things that are going on them. Like, it's, it's not have to do with obeying a bunch of laws. It is being uh, demonstrated. It's being revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So why was Paul's message so offensive? I don't think it's really because it included the Gentiles in God's plan. But because Paul was telling the Jews that all their law-keeping, all these things that were actually their identity, things that they prided themselves on, it really didn't give them any advantage in God's eyes. They thought, oh, God's, God's happy with us because we obey. But his point is, you know, it's really not that. And Paul spends the next four chapters in the book of Romans, walking, through, walking the Jews through their own story, their own story, which they've kind of misinterpreted and explaining to them how, how they're misreading it. And the issue, the thing that offends is specifically about their relationship to the law, which he's starting to lay out here. Because these religious Jews, they practice things that made them distinct from the Roman world. They didn't eat the same way, they didn't live the same way, they didn't have the same cultural values, and they, or, or at least some of them, believed that because they did those things, God was pleased with them, and that they would be blessed uniquely because of all the things that they did for God. That was their hope. That was their good news. We're better than the Gentiles, and so God is going to be pleased with us. And Paul is just pulling the rug right out from that and letting them understand that, you know what? That's actually not the blessing that you have. Romans 4. And this is in a, the NLT translation. I think it's a little easier to read. It can get a little complex here in Romans 4. But he says this, Now, is the blessing only for Jews? Right? This was what they were thinking. Hey, we, we're blessed. We have the law. We're special people. Is the blessing only for Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we've been saying that Abraham, that's the father of Judaism, was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? He was counted as righteous. Uh, uh, what was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Certainly God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Because look, at these Jews are saying, 
God likes us because we follow the law. We get circumcised, which is not super pleasant. And doesn't that mean anything? And what Paul is saying is like, look at the thing. The thing is like, Abraham was, was a blessed of God. Was he blessed because he got circumcised? Paul is saying is, no, actually, he was blessed before that. Circumcision came from his, his faith in God. But God accepted Abraham before he did anything, before he obeyed in any point, before he took on any sign of distinction or any obedience or any expression of, of listening to God. Like, before any of that happened, Abraham was blessed by God. Circumc- he goes on, circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is a spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. But Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. The story of Abraham is he was just this pagan guy, and he went out and he founded this family, and they looked to him as the founding father, and they said, his is our story. See, he separated himself, and he obeyed God, and he made God happy because he obeyed him. And they're saying, saying, saying no, that is not the story. You, you don't understand the story. God, Abraham was just this pagan guy who had no interest in God, and suddenly God said, hey, Abraham, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to bless you. Come on out and meet me. The story is that Abraham just had faith. He he heard God, God's invitation to be blessed and to know him and to be accepted in him. And he responded to that invitation with a simple, okay. And he didn't do it perfectly. Frankly, (laughs) Abraham's beginning of the story is him really being pretty, doing a pretty bad job of being obedient. But the point that Paul's making is that Abraham was blessed, not because he did such a good job at following the law, but he had faith. It was faith. It was not his law-keeping. It was not his moral superiority. It was not anything to do with his wisdom or intelligence or how sanctimonious he was. It had to do with the fact that God reached out to him, said, I'd like to have a relationship with you. And he said, okay. <laughs> and then he was blessed. Not because he went on and followed, right? right? He didn't obey and make God happy. God was happy with him, and then he obeyed. That's just the point. It's like you, you, you flip it around when you think he earned God's pleasure. God's happiness, God's blessing. He says, no, you you got to flip that back around. God is a blessing God. God is like light in the world. I don't deserve this light around me. Neither do you. We all get it equally. And he's coming, revealing to people, to his creation, that he loves and cares for He's coming and revealing to people that he loves and cares for them, that he wants to adopt them into his family, and, and all they have to do is respond in faith. We don't need to obey to make God happy. God, because of what Jesus has done, 
has paid the price of any sin and any guilt and anything that would separate us from God, and it's been done, and it's been paid for entirely. And God's blessing and the light shines into the world, and all that is required is simply to recognize what has been done, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the provision already paid and the blessing already guaranteed, and it simply comes by faith, by just saying, okay, I get it. And I, and I want to walk into those things. So, so we don't obey God to make him happy. He is happy. Actually, and you know what? And the point, which I think is worth saying, it's not really the point he's making here. So, so why would Abraham obey? Abraham would obey the God who's happy with him already, who blesses him already, so that Abraham can be happy. Because we've been in this series of everyday disciples, and, and it really, I really think we need to clarify don't think that if you are a good everyday disciple and you check off the six boxes every week or every month or whatever, that God is happy with you. God is already happy with you because Jesus loves you and he died on the cross to save you. And you will be a disciple, someone who obeys so that you will be happy in him. He's already happy in you. He's already paid the price, loves you. He cares for you. Disciples don't earn the blessing Disciples are blessed, and they want to make much of that blessing, and so they're disciples. And, and this is the, the mistake that religious people always make. We think, i got to obey so that I can earn the favor of God, and the message of the gospel, the offensive message of the gospel is, actually, God's not super impressed by all your obedience. His obedience, the work of Jesus Christ, him coming to save. Faith in that is the ba basis of blessing. It is the thing that impresses God. Faith impresses God. It's the only thing that impresses God. It's the only thing that he thinks is awesome and beautiful and good. And think about the position of the Jews, right? They were surrounded by people who were totally ignorant of God, who were, in fact, barbarous people, brutal people, perverse people. And they have God's word, and they believe that they know God's characters, and they were the keepers of his revelation and of wisdom. And they knew who God was, and they know that God is holy, and they know that he desires to bring order and flourishing into the world. And as they kept the law, and as they tried to obey what God had called them to do, you can imagine that they would start to see themselves as people who had a very important task of standing against the culture of Rome. And they started to have their identity as people who were against Rome instead of his people who were putting their faith and trust in God, who was going to defend them. They were surrounded by people who, who hated them, who wanted to destroy them, and so they, they had this, this twisting of their identity, the misunderstanding of their, their story. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. If you go through the prophets and you go through ancient like Hebrew literature, the... Um, the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, is always associated, well, not always, but generally the imagery used to talk about Gentiles is uh, like ocean imagery. 
the pearl of great price. It's from the ocean. We're talking about Gentiles, right? We can read into these things, like the imagery consistently through the prophets. Tyre and Sidon, ocean cities in, in, in Israel. They're thought of cities of the Gentiles. They're kind of this overlap where, where uh, the Gentile world is coming in. And it makes sense because, right, what does the ocean do? It's constantly beating the shore. It's constantly encroaching. If you are a person in the ancient world, the ocean is a terrifying thing because it is a force, a violent force that's always trying to tear down. The sea is dangerous. It's invasive. It's pounding away against the shores. And the Jews thought of themselves as the steady land, the rock in the middle of a stormy sea. They were supposed to be faithful. They were supposed to be holding ground. They were supposed to be obeying the law of God so that God would eventually be able to come down and work among all this chaos and finally drive back the waves that were encroaching all the time. They had this plan. They had this calling. They were supposed to be God's people. But God comes and says, you totally have misunderstood your identity. You've totally misunderstood what I've called you to. And God is actually going to make Gentiles, ignorant sinners, righteous just like Abraham. Not because they get their lives together, but because he's just going to bless them. And these Jews are angry and uncomfortable. Because they feel like, well, what have we been doing all this for? We've been standing against Rome and and waiting for God to come, and God was going to set Rome right, and you're telling me that all these stupid, perverse, ignorant people can just come and have a relationship with God? And they don't have to come to synagogue first and wash first and sacrifice first, but there's already been a sacrifice paid for them and they just have to have faith and believe and that's it? And how are we going to guarantee that they'll be good people then? They're just Romans. They're just going to be just as bad as Rome has always been. What kind of stupid plan is this? And it goes on. So they kick Paul out. And it says, so he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justius. That is a Greek name to the max. (laughs) This is not a Jew. Um, He's a worshiper of God. So he's a non-Jew who was interested in Judaism. He's like one of these, these Jews and Gentiles who are listening. He leaves there. He goes to the house of this man whose house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you or hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. It's amazing, right? He goes into the synagogue. He preaches this offensive message that God is just going to bless the world by faith in Jesus Christ, not because of their their obedience, not because of their goodness, but God is going to preempt the transformation with blessing, reversing the order that that, that they had expected. Maybe, well, yeah, the Gentiles, they can shape up, and then maybe God can bless them. Yeah, sure, God would do that, but they got to shape up first, right? And he's just saying, no, God is going to bless first, and then the shaping up will take care of itself because God is God, and he knows how to deal with it. 
So they reject that message. And what does Paul do? He walks out of the door. He takes the left. He goes to the next house and goes in and stays there for a year and a half proclaiming this message. It's crazy. Right next to the synagogue, they kick him out. And so he just says, okay, I'm just going to go. And God is going to tell me to go out into the city. And I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to keep preaching this message. I'm going to even go to this this non-Jewish worshiper of God. And he's going to have me in his house. And then this message is going to go all out through Corinth big time. And by the way, it's a mess. Read First and Second Corinthians. It's a mess when all these non-religious people come in and they have the blessing of God and, and, and all the Jews are worried, well, oh, but, but they're not going to do the right things. And, and the truth is that, yeah, it's a, big, it's a big mess. But God blesses them. And God teaches them obedience over time. But he, he begins with blessing and adoption and acceptance, right? And, and I mean, like the big takeaway, I mean, it's, it's really clear in the text. If God's people won't proclaim the message that he's asking them, then the message will leave them behind. They'll go next door. They'll go down the street. If God's people can't just be clear and just say, look, we're not a, a movement of cultural renewal. We are a peaceful invasion of the Holy Spirit into the world. That's what we are before we're anything. We're not a, we're not a moral revival. We are a revival on the basis of this gospel, which we, which we can't stop preaching. The good news that the blessing is for any who, by faith, come in and have fellowship with God. And if, if the church wants to wait for people to clean up their act before they proclaim the message, then, the, then the, the gospel is going to leave the church. It'll go out no matter what. God's going to bring the message forward. He'll just move down the street to people who actually want to hear it. And I get that living in Seattle, living in the West Coast, living, I, mean, I was in San Francisco earlier this week. Boy, the West Coast. And we feel like we've got to stand against culture. We've got to sort out this place and we've got to do the things. And you know what? Honestly, like, I, I get it. Like, I, I do think that God wants to bring about law and righteousness. But, but true righteousness comes from people believing the gospel. And then hearts change. And it's messy along the way. But we have to. We cannot stop preaching the message. We cannot be afraid to preach the message. Religious people will find the message offensive that we tell people, all you've got to do is have faith that you've been adopted in by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you just need to like let that get into your heart and God will sort out your moral issues along the way. People will find that offensive. Religious people will find that offensive if we preach that and if we keep going on to that. But we need to hold fast the message and not be afraid and we need to speak out. And when God's people get their eyes off of their part, because this is our part, to do not be afraid to go and speak the message, to proclaim the gospel. When God's people do that, then, then things don't work, right? Because like, what was keeping, what was keeping Corinth, what was keeping God from moving into Corinth? Just that God's people wouldn't believe the message. They had everything. They had, they had Abraham. They had the faith of Abraham. They, they, they just wanted to misinterpret it and think that, that what God was trying to do was make them more righteous than the Gentiles. But actually what God was trying to do 
is to pour out blessing and faith on the whole world. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a revolution of adoption. Worship team's going to come up. But I just... Um, I, I know that the thing, having been in, in the church world for, for long enough, I know that the concern that we have is, yeah, gospel by faith. He just blesses anybody by faith. It's all by grace. We just believe in Jesus. But how, about, how do we manage the sin? It's always the question that we, we, we ask. And it's a fair question. But I, I, I think it really needs to be understood that the reason the Jews were so offended is because Paul said, that's God's problem. God's going to manage the offensiveness of, of, and the ignorance of the Gentiles by bringing light and faith, and that he's going to write the law in their hearts. That's the promise, the new covenant promise that like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel, you know, and like, like all the prophets were looking forward to this time when God was going to write the law, his, his righteousness, onto people's hearts. And the Jews were just like, but the law needs to be sort of more serious, taken more seriously than that. If we just let God do the work, will it really happen? Because we've been having to do God's work for him for a long time. The message is offensive because when we just say, no, God's real. <laughs> God's spirit is real. God really can bring about transformation in people that makes a lot of us uncomfortable. But the gospel is this message of radical inclusion of people who don't deserve it. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it doesn't mean that when we accept and come to faith that we immediately have all our problems work out. But it does mean that over time, as we continue on in this work of faith, that God knows how to manage our sin. He knows how to deal with it. And we need to trust that. And we need to be the sorts of people who can look at broken people in a broken world and say, actually, this world doesn't need to be, the sin in this world doesn't need to be managed. God's already paid the price for the sin, taken away all its power. And we just need to be faithful to proclaim the message that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior to sinners. He's the Savior to broken people. I was walking around um, San Francisco, and it's not, it's not unlike Seattle, although I, I would just say it's like, 10 degrees more so than, than the wildness in downtown uh, San Francisco and there's human feces everywhere. Everywhere. I'm like, I'm like hopping along. I try not to step. <laughs> and how sad is that? And we could, we could groan over that and just say, oh man, they just ruined this beautiful city. And then you got to realize those are people who are wandering the streets and we could create a bunch of laws and rules and clean up the streets. But those are people. What about them? It's, it's like the progressive world. This, this West Coast vision is, you know what the hope is for, for homeless people? Is that they would overdose and die. Because it's, it's true that 
people have issues and they, they sin and they act from brokenness and pain and I, and I do that and you do that and in our foolishness we rebel against God and God is dealing with that problem not by cleaning up the mess but by adopting people in saying yeah you are the worst <laughs> like you've done terrible things and rejected anything that you could have known about me yet in all your brokenness and all your sin and all your rebellion I'm going to redeem you and make you children of God and I, I was like walking around the city and I'm thinking I would prefer that it be cleaner <laughs> But God sees the heart. And God doesn't want to just make the streets clean. He doesn't want to make culture righteous by whatever shallow version of that word that we use. He wants to call out people and bring light and life to people who are far away. And we cannot do anything to get in the way of that message. That's the gospel. It's by faith. Adopted in. Spirit is moving in this world. And we, we have to do the hard work, not becoming hard-hearted and judgmental, but just going back and just saying, no, I know God has a plan for this place where I live. I know God has a plan for my messed up relatives and friends and people who seem to be going a million miles an hour in the opposite direction of God. I know God can meet them all the way over there in La La Land and say, don't you know you are loved? Don't you know you're my child. Don't you know that you can have a life and a fellowship with me and you don't have to clean yourself up first? I am preempting all of that with blessing. That's the message that we proclaim. Let's go and tell people about it. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, you invite us into a mess but one that you are in charge of. And we've been given a very clear directive. Go and proclaim this message. God, teach us to watch our own hearts and the pride that just creeps in. God, fill us with that spirit of adoption. Lord, to fill us. But even right now, Holy Spirit, would you come and remind us of what you've told us is true? Is that because of what you've done, we're made clean. Because of what you've done, we're made right. Because of what you've done, Jesus, not because of what we've done, because of what you've done, we can have hope and peace and joy. Lord, because of what you've done, we have a life with you. Teach us to
let that wash over us and change us and transform us. Holy Spirit, build us up. Make us be people of your gospel, people who trust in your message, people who trust in you, Jesus. Lord, send us out of this place today as we worship you, Lord, with joy. Send us out with clarity. Lord, send us out just calling your blessing which you've already assured down on the lost and broken world that we lived in. Lord, let us be people of blessing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We do have communion set up today. So if you just want to come up and get the bread and the cup and take it at your seat today, just have a moment with the Lord.